0: Two, three. I'm Alan Cozen. I'm Richard Buskin.
1: (laughs) He's Mark Lewison.
0: Oh, and I'm Eric Taros.
1: So where this really started was, you know, I found over the years, the White Album, just listening to it time and again, I found myself sort of zeroing in on a lot of John's tracks. So I just thought, wow, this, this is where he peaked, you know, just the, the breadth, the depth, the variety of material, the personal nature of it. And then it occurred to me, there's a full album in this, you know, there are 12 tracks, If we add the single, you know, the B side revolution, then it's thirteen. So I count up McCartney's tracks, exactly the same number. And I thought, wow, I wonder, you know, if we just basically isolate those tracks, you know, separate them. And I created playlists, John Lennon's white album, Paul McCartney's white album, and they were just like absolutely amazing, you know, just blew me away. And so that's where this started.
0: You remember the, the, the philosophy that the Beatles are now serving is each other's side men, and it was basically almost like a solo album. I don't think we were coming from that standpoint no, at all. at all. Especially with the new release. I mean, anyone listening to these tracks understands this is the tightest band in the world. Uh, so, so the side men thing wasn't really the inspiration behind this. It was just more like, oh my God, these are just fantastic standalone albums. Maybe a little less fantastic for, for George and Ringo. But certainly Paul and, and John, uh, you know, could have put these things out. And then the challenge became, well, you know, how would you order them? What would you, know, what would you do if there, if you excluded all of the other white album songs by the other players? Would it still hold up? Or what would it be? So we did three
1: episodes. We did do a John Lennon's white album, Paul McCartney's, and then we did a George and Ringo one. Here, we're just sticking to the John and Paul angle, because those are the two strongest
2: albums, as such, without a doubt. Mm.
1: I mean, what was your attitude when you first heard this concept that I sort of told you about?
2: Actually, it was one that I'd i been thinking about already, in particular with reference to John, because he comes out fighting in 68, Yeah. Uh, post-Rishikesh. Uh, the end of Rishikesh is obviously a turning point for John. And then there's that moment which he, uh, Derek Taylor wrote about it, uh, in one or two of his books, which was that um, Derek came back from LA to help run Apple in April 68. And he, and he and John were always very close, much closer than he was to Paul. And they have an evening, uh, Derek rents a house or he borrows the house that Peter Asher has in Surrey, uh, which is unused. And they have an evening where Derek and John take LSD together. Uh, and John, as he said in the Wenner interview, had been dismantling his own ego with so many LSD trips in 67 that he um, needed to be built back up again. And Derek spent some of that evening reminding him of some of the songs he'd written through the years, but not only the songs, but the man that he was, and how he had never suffered any fools, how he had been completely no bullshit from, well, before Derek knew him, back to... His childhood years. So um, after that evening, John is John restored. Uh, and with that and the end of the way, the way that Rishikesh ended, he's up and fighting again. And th- it seems to me that there's a clear watershed moment in John Lennon's life which is I'm back to being who I used to be right he's like the art school John Lennon again he's not going to take any shit from anyone right Uh, and when he goes to New York in May 68 he and Paul go to New York and they announce Apple Um, and he actually says you know we're setting up a company so that people don't have to go down on their hands and knees in someone's office probably yours Yours. which is a highly (laughs) belligerent thing to say but completely where he was he says no no nonsense of any kind. It's just like, this is it, I'm going to say what I think and you're going to get it. And with, if you don't like it, fine. That's what Two Virgins is. It's like, here we are. If you don't like it, don't look at it. But this is, this is who I am. So from that point on, I'm thinking, well, John Lennon's White Album, yeah. I mean, every track on it is... If that was a John Lennon solo album, it would just be the greatest album you'd ever heard. Absolutely. Um, It would be up there with the Plasticona Band album, only even more approachable and what? More approachable and more melodic. Yeah. So I have been thinking it, but when I heard your shows, your three shows, um, which was about six baths for me, because I only listen when I'm in the bath. Um, (laughs) As I'd expect. I might be late, but I'm very clean.
0: Uh, and well informed as yeah, well. and yes. well informed, very well informed.
3: And now we will never get this out of our minds when we do future shows. <laughs> but
2: that's okay, you know. Um, then I thought, yeah, it was. It really made me think. It, it's very stimulating to actually look at them individually and see where they were, not only as musicians but particularly as composers.
3: Well, you know, I mean, we, having done the last show, um, I, I thought the concept was really interesting. Uh, in this case, we have to give George and Ringo short shrift, but yeah. uh, because and, and and it's a pity because George's stuff is some of the best stuff on the White Album. Um, I, I'm not sure I would say that "Don't Pass Me By" and the vocal on "Good Night" are necessarily the best stuff on the White Album, but they're you know they're part of the White Album. Yeah, it's the Beatles, the White Album. It's great. Shut up, you know, oh, yeah. as Paul says. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah you know I, the the idea of a, a john album I agree with Mark it would would have if it were a john solo album it really would have been the best john solo album it's you know with John solo albums and certainly with Paul solo albums there are peaks and valleys yeah uh, and this is pretty much all peaks it is isn't it yeah it would be an amazing album yeah
1: now what about the Paul album you know that one is very eclectic
3: even more eclectic than the John one would
1: be. I just don't uh, think it's as consistent, necessarily, although it's fantastic in its own way.
3: You know, it is, and there are some valleys there, although the valleys are not particularly low. Right. And uh, to, since it is, uh, my mission in life now seems to be trying to get people to listen to the 5.1 mix, <laughs> um, you know, the first time I played that and Heard uh, why don't we do it in the road, which is a song that I you know just doesn't mean a lot to me. It's a it's a, an okay, quick throwaway uh, you know track. But you listen to it in 5.1, and there's the arpeggiated guitar and the piano and the bass line and the, the sort of drum beat and and his in really incredible vocal uh, all around you. And you know yeah. you're totally in this texture. And I'm thinking. This really sounds and feels like a masterpiece, and it's still just why don't we do it in the road? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, yeah, it's not as consistent as John's, but even the uh, the not amazing stuff is is. You know, it's nice. a lot of fun. I mean, Wild Honey Pie's fun, really. Yeah. Uh, and and it's really those two tracks that I think are a bit lower than the rest. Maybe Martha, My Dear a little. Mm. There's a bit of the middle of Martha, My, Ooh, My Dear. Oh, I
0: love Martha, My Dear. What I, are you yeah, talking about? Yeah,
3: I like it. You know, it's... it's, it's <laughs> Sorry. Kind of, I mean, we're talking about, you know, what has what? to be Peaks and Valleys. Martha, My Dear... You know what I dislike about Martha, My Dear? What? Only is the middle section, uh, the instrumental but part. Oh, it I sounds like to me like it really wants to be let him in. Well, I mean, <laughs>
0: I think there's a big difference, but it's, I think everyone here would agree with me. It's probably the prettiest song ever written about a dog. Absolutely, <laughs> Shannon, good, close. Shannon's close second. Yes, well. this is going to the dogs. So we should get away from that now. I couldn't. I couldn't help it. it. Is it? A,
2: is it about a dog?
0: Well, you, you and I had this discussion. Is that I about always Jane? I just.
2: Well, oh, please. I, we don't. We She's don't not know. a dog. <laughs> I mean, we just don't know. I mean, why did he name his dog Martha? Was it after somebody? And this song is after that. This song is about that person, and the, so was the dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's hold your hand out, you pretty girl, not hold your paw out, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> ah.
0: Yeah. You know what? I never thought of that. <laughs> Hidden yeah. in plain sight. That's it's the same good. number
3: yeah. of syllables as Francie, but it has, has more of a lilt.
2: Ooh. Francie, my dear, if you read Francis book, I, I think you'll find that that wasn't quite the way their relationship was. Okay.
0: But, yeah. You but know, with th- oh, I was gonna say with the new uh, the new White album out. One of the few things, the few criticisms we had about it was the idea that hey, where's the visual component? And uh, when I know Mark, when you and I have looked through some of the film that Apple has. Um, Francie shows up in some of the really key parts of it, and I, I wonder if that had something to do with it, because you've got Paul McCartney sitting at the, the base of the stairs, going up to the control room of Studio 2, and he's tapping along, and he's playing Helter Skelter. Maybe Francie's presence uh, in that uh, in those films is part of why we didn't get them. That's just a theory.
1: Do you have definitive running orders for each of these? You said it keeps evolving.
3: Yeah, I, I don't really have a definitive one. I mean, mm. actually, w- looking at the John one, I pretty much have it in the order it appears. Yeah, me too. I wouldn't begin with Dear Prudence, because it's not necessarily a uh, an, an album opener, but Revolution, could, Revolution 1 could be. In fact, I have mine beginning with Revolution 1, ending with Revolution 9. I have mine starting with Everybody's Got Something to Hide. Mm. Yeah, that could do it. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see, we go with Revolution, Prudence, Glass Onion, um, Bungalow Bill, and Happiness is a Warm Gun, then Your Blues, I'm So Tired, Julia, Goodnight, uh, Me and My Monkey, Cry Baby, Revolution Nine.
2: Where was the break there? I mean, uh, end of side one, start yeah. of side
3: two. Um, well, mine's a CD. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was thinking of it, of like the side two-ish thing would start with your blues, but that kind of puts an awful lot on side two. Mm. Um, maybe side one could end with "So Tired." I could switch "So Tired" and your blues, and have you know bungalow bill happiness is a worm gun i'm so tired but happiness is a worm gun is a great ender for a side as we know you know uh and then start with your blues on side two skip directly to julia i don't know that doesn't work as well as having so tired
4: in between i'm so tired i haven't slept is on the bling I wonder should I get up and fix myself
2: At the uh, the double white album and um, Paul starts three sides and John starts one mm-hmm. and for the closing tracks I think it's John has three and George has one so there isn't a Paul song that closes any of the sides mm. um, because it was always a key part of the pacing of an album of yeah. how you would open and close each side right yeah because they're real junction points and George Martin always instilled in them how you had to have a strong out yeah you know and a strong in and a strong out.
1: Yeah, I mean, as Chris Thomas said, you know that had to be a hell of an album to sequence. Yeah. yeah, incredible, really, that they made it without another big argument.
5: Yeah, you
0: know, I remember when we did the original show. I had one uh, idea that I really s- stuck with, which is I would have expanded the horizon just a little bit, especially for John's album, and I would have included the uh, the uh, World Wildlife Fund version of Across the Universe because it was really the last things they were recording before they went off to uh, Maharishi's uh, ashram. And I thought, thematically for me, uh, John was looking for Daddy. And there is so much enthusiasm in that song underlying, um, you know, Guru Day. And I would have ended the album. Second to last would have been Revolution 9. But the last song for me, for John, would have been Sexy Sadie, because he's back to being disappointed in The Search for Daddy. So it was kind of a circular journey. And everything else in, in between, I keep changing it around. You know, it's a, it's like when we used to make Smile albums, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. it's like, nah, this works better. But those two, I, those are my big anchor points, is I would, I would have that wildlife version of, of Across the Universe and end with Sexy Sadie. Everything else in there can kind of be in play.
1: Right. And Alan, you know, you've got this interesting concept of the three revolutions and mm-hmm. how it all ties together. Maybe you could explain that. Also, I was interested in the last show about Can You Take Me Back, which you hear it actually as the start of Revolution 9, which I never did.
3: Apparently, nobody ever does, including the the people who sequence the tracks and always put it with, you know. Um, So I guess maybe it isn't, but I had always heard it that way. Uh, And so... I'm not married to that idea. But what about
1: The Three Revolutions?
3: Well, The Three Revolutions, the idea is, I mean, he, he started, obviously he didn't intend it as a, a, a trilogy or a triptych, but it became one. And um, the way I, I hear it in a, in a nutshell is you've got the sort of slow, laconic revolution one where... You know, it's just kind of dreamy. He's just sort of contemplating the revolution because there's all this revolution in the air and he's thinking about it. And and it gets to that line when you talk about destruction, you know, that you can count me out, which on the Esher demo and on the song manuscript just says out. Here he adds in. Um, and he always explained he just wasn't really sure how he felt about it. Um, later in the sequence, um, You get the single version of Revolution, which we know was recorded to be a single because George and Paul didn't think that the slow, laid-back acoustic one would be a good single so he did a fast one but where that fits in the trilogy idea is okay now things are heating up it's getting more dangerous it's getting more you know and the danger of it is is kind of signaled in the fact that it's a, a loud electric track with distorted guitars and faster also um, <laughs> higher key uh, not in the way they recorded it they recorded it in the same key but it was sped up uh, yeah. you know half a step um, so, you know, you get a greater sense of urgency. Um, and then you get to Revolution 9, and that's the revolution. That's just society falling apart. You know, you hear gunshots. You hear disconnections. You hear just just crazy stuff going on. And have I mentioned about the 5.1 mix? The 5.1 <laughs> mix is just, like, all over the place. and um, Really kind of puts you in the middle of that revolution, and you, you know, uh, except that you don't really want to get out. You know? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, you want to keep immersing yourself in it yeah and uh, it you know it, and it ends with you know the the soccer chancel that line block that kick. The whole world was going through an awful lot with student protests and uh, including everything that happened at the Democratic National Convention that yeah. August yeah just, a couple of days after the single of revolution was released but before months before the album was released one of the big things i remember from watching the coverage of that at the time was people out you know protesting chanting the whole world is watching the whole world is watching mm-hmm. i kind of wish john had gotten that recording and made that the end of revolution 9 instead yeah. of the the soccer right uh, i'm mm-hmm. sorry Football. Football. Chance. Football. Actually,
2: yeah. it's American football. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's an American recording. No kidding. But yeah, yeah, it is. I remember hearing on, that in a uh, actual one of, football game. It's one of the Electra sound effects records. No kidding. Yeah, oh, well. Jack Holtzman, yeah. yeah.
5: That's
1: okay. the, the thing with the White Album with John, as you said, you know, we're getting full on Lennon here. Mm. And I mean, just the different sort of targets that he's swiping at, and he's hitting them every time. Yeah. And, you know, vocally, he's on fire. Uh, You know, we get so many fantastic (laughs) vocals on his songs. But for me, you know, and also in the remix version, what really came out and in the outtakes is Julia. Just such an incredible vocal. It's so fragile, so loving and tender and haunting at the same time. And that, that you really hear on the recording itself, you know, a bit of the reverb on the voice.
4: Half of what I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you, to
0: Also, one thing I really love about John's work on, on this album is he seems to be back to this taking what's around him. You know, Not a show tune like from when they were in the earlier days, but, but having learned that picking style while he's sitting up in Rishikesh. Right. Uh, Mark and I can both attest, having been up to Rishikesh, I can see why they wrote so many songs. There's not a lot to do. Uh, unless you like being chased by monkeys and nudged by cows. So, uh, which did you ever get nudged by cows up there?
2: Uh, I can't comment on that. Okay. Sorry.
0: <laughs>
2: I don't discuss my private life. I'm sorry. But,
0: but being in a place like that is fantastic because you know, think of the world of the Beatles in 1968. The, the world is at their feet. Everyone wants something from them. And now you're up in this place in the foothills of the Himalayas. And there's really, it's a tiny, tiny little town. And then the ashram is, you know, about a mile outside. So there's really nothing much to do. And except focus on maybe playing guitar, learning a little uh, guitar technique from Donovan and then just getting on with writing So I, I, I think that's the gift in a sense too of Rishi Kesh. The white album couldn't have happened as far as I'm concerned without Rishi Kesh. They would never have had the time to just put all of these songs together And, and as Craig Bartok said on you know the show,
1: that finger picking style that he learned from Donovan and you listen to something like Julia it makes it so much more personal than if he'd been strumming, yeah. which is what he
3: would have <coughs> previously. Right. And what he did in one of the outtakes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, we associate John's songs on the album with stridency because of the way that they're attacked in the, the method of recording. is a lot of bite to it. The whole of the White Album, when I listen to... It's not so much the new mix, just all the outtakes, just all of it. It's, it snaps. Every track on that album yeah. snaps. Yeah. Um, but most of, I think, possibly all of John's songs. Were there any John's songs that weren't written in Rishikesh on that album? Or were they all Rishikesh songs? Didn't you say Glass, Glass Onion? Onion? Yeah, Glass Onion. That would yeah. be one. But that was still written in the immediate aftermath.
0: Well, Revolution yeah. 9, I would imagine, was a construction, right? I don't well, yeah, you
2: know. but Revolution itself was written in Rishikesh. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it occurs to me that actually, if you look at the lyrics, they're not so biting, um, dear Prudence is actually a very beautiful thing. Prudence farrow in her bungalow, or her chalet at the ashram, seriously meditating, meals being left for her outside her door, untouched. And after about two, three days, people are worried that she may be in there and, you know, maybe even dead. So they're growing concerned about her. John Lennon goes into, he writes this song. I mean, we know that it's a song for Prudence Farah, but can you actually put yourself in the position? He goes into her chalet, knocks on the door, and goes in with a couple of other people and strums a song to her to say, you know, come out, it's a it's a brand new day, the sun is shining, everything's beautiful. Isn't that fantastic,
1: though? You know, because yeah. you often think of the Beatles, you know, yeah. couldn't give a crap. You think
2: of him as this hard-faced cynic, yeah. you know, yeah. but, but it, that is a very beautiful thing to do from one human being to another, a very tender moment. Um, similarly, also at Rishikesh, they're away from their son Julian. We tend to think of John Lennon as not being a great father to Julian uh, because he said so himself and because we have other examples of it. But it's a lullaby for the son whose birthday he's missing. It's Julian's fifth birthday. It's the first birthday that they've been away for. There's a party being held for him, and he and Cynthia are missing it, John and Cynthia. So he writes this song, a beautiful, tender lullaby, for his son. So when he wrote Beautiful Boy for Sean, it was not the first time he had written a song for a son. But it's on the White album, and we think John's all hard on the White album, and there it is.
1: Because he promoted Beautiful Boy that way, right? That yeah, it's about Sean. but yeah. with Julian, he never promoted. It, well, her. by
2: the time it came out, they're estranged because they're, he's getting a divorce. In fact, they were divorced by that
5: point. Yeah,
2: um, and then Julia, a song for uh, essentially for his mother, um, certainly, and whether he knew it or not, because he wasn't very good on his own chronology. Ten years exactly that year since she was killed. Um, so three songs right there are very tender songs and yet we think of John being this hard hard guy
1: and how intensely personal Julia is yeah. right I mean he's talking to his mother here and saying I found my soulmate," basically yeah you know and that's just when people say John Lennon wasn't honest I mean okay he BS like the rest of them but when he opened up it was like no one else
2: I think he was always honest that's the thing about John I think he was always honest we've had Discussions this weekend about uh, the, the honesty and candor of the Beatles, and there is, seems to be this, this this revolving sentiment that John Lennon would said this one day and that the next day, and you couldn't really trust what he was saying. But I don't buy that. I think he was always honest, or always speaking in the moment, what was in his head. I think that is honesty to me.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, something came up. I, I don't know if you folks have gone through all of the discs yet. It's only been since Friday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a million years ago one of the things that really interested me was that that uh, rehearsal version of let it be in that funky different style yeah, yeah. i wonder uh, maybe that was written in rishikesh maybe that had something to do with john writing about his mom that paul now writes about his mom except it's brother malcolm yeah but yeah and yet, and yeah. yet mary, mother mary came to him in a dream
2: yeah. <laughs> um, no, Let It Be was written in that time frame. That's why we're hearing it like that. He's just, it's fresh. Yeah, uh, Because that, a couple of the engineers told me that he was writing that during the White Album. Okay, so, so it was after the they
1: world. came home. And that's the one by oh, yeah. Guitar Jenny yeah. Weep session because he says about the cans on Eric. At the yeah,
2: end. yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's late September, yeah. 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 So if Goodnight was written
3: for Julian in Rishikesh, which makes sense, um, maybe that's the 28th Esher demo, that we don't have.
2: Right. Yeah, well, it could be. It could be. There, um, They have notebooks. It, the, one of the great advantages of this new box set is not only the audio content, but also the visual content. We're, we're not getting a video disc, unfortunately. But there is a fantastic book with all sorts of illustrations in it, including from Paul's own collection, his notebook in which he wrote the songs. There was actually a stationery store at, in the ashram at Ritchie Case. There was a printing press there as well. It was quite a sophisticated place in a way. Um, though, it, you know, it's in the middle of a jungle. But um, he had a notebook in which he wrote his songs. And you can see in the new White Album box, Paul's handwritten lyrics for his songs. And also John's are in there as well. He too had a notebook. So um, um, you, there actually were some other songs that they wrote there that they didn't demo uh, mm-hmm. at Kinforn's at Isha.
4: Won't you come out to play? Of everything Don't you let me see you.
1: mccartney's wide i mean we've been focusing largely on john and as i said you know with paul it's very eclectic but how does it speak to where he was at in
2: 1968 um i think paul mccartney was i don't know what it says actually first of all it says what a phenomenal songwriter he was yeah master of all styles sensational vocalist brilliant multi-instrumentalist um brilliant band member harmony lines on everybody else's songs as well as his own i mean one of paul mccartney's unspoken um, immense gifts to the beatles is the harmony lines he did on everybody else's songs but as for paul himself in 68 wow he's been in a relationship with jane for five years which has been has reached uh, a fairly good place by 67 because she comes back from the American theater tour that she did in spring 67 with the Bristol Old Vic. Uh, And at Paul's request, she kind of sets the theater aside for a while because he doesn't really want her to be doing that. Um, And they set up house together, more or less. She furnishes Cavendish Avenue and and pretty much moves in. Mm. So it is their house. um, And then she goes to India with Paul in spring 68. When they come back at the end of March, she wants to work again. Uh, And so she she is cast in a play that opens in June. Uh, And as soon as she's cast in a play, Paul starts being unfaithful to her. Um, And he's unfaithful to her. I mean, he's been unfaithful all all along. But he's unfaithful now in a way that, you know, he's sleeping with girls in their bed, in the house that she's furnished. And things are difficult. And their relationship hits the skids quite quickly. Mm. And then Yoko comes along into John's life, and that kind of derails Paul to quite a significant degree because it's uh, in Tune In I write about what it was like in the Beatles for Paul, and they're not even the Beatles yet, when Stuart joins the group, when John's friend Stuart actually becomes one of the band. Um, And literally speaking, when they were riding together on a bus in Liverpool, Whereas, you know, the best seat on the bus is always upstairs, because that's where you can smoke, as in a day in the life. Um, But also right at the front, because you've got the window right in front of you, you've got the best view. And it's always the seat to get. And initially, well, for a long time, it's been John and Paul sitting at the front with George in the seat behind, leaning forward, trying to be part of their conversation, but not quite. When Stuart joins, it's John and Stuart at the front of the bus, and Paul has to sit in the seat behind with... George and he doesn't like it, and he behaves in a way that is typical of human behaviour. Not particular to Paul, but he's jealous. Well, when Yoko comes along, it's much the same thing. Paul is kind of usurped. John wants Yoko sitting next to him; he doesn't necessarily want Paul sitting there. So Paul's nose is put out of joint, and he enters a very turbulent period. He's just—he's doing a lot of pot. He's has been doing coke, but. Isn't doing it quite so much now, I don't think. Uh, at that point, I mean. Um, but with John and Yoko, it, he wants to be cool and accept her, but on the other hand, it's the Stewart situation again, and he can't. And um, the Jane hap- the Jane breakup happens almost immediately. Mm. Um, and then he gets a series of girlfriends. If you read Francis Schwartz's book, Body Count, which is perfectly believable, it's not a scandal sheet, but it is tough reading if you're a Maca fan because you get quite a good insight into his personality, very strong insight into his personality. So he, his world is upside down. He's lost his girlfriend. He's he's not lost his songwriting partner or his Beatle buddy, but he's been somewhat displaced. And yet, at the same time, he's writing beautiful songs. Yeah. And that is a real dichotomy that I haven't quite ever come to grips with, and I'm not quite sure when I will, um, because it's they don't add up but it, 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 it's what it was what was going on
1: yeah he do, he's not as revealing in song is he as you know john lays it all out there
2: uh well th- that's the thing well, you could say about paul the, the the most autobiographical thing about paul's songs on the white album is that he doesn't do autobiographical songs so you learn that yes you know you learn <laughs> you, you know that that is an insight into his personality that he can't actually do that but what he does come up with is, is a whole load of incredibly interesting songs. Yeah, um, Bewitching, bewildering songs. Uh, harmonically, they're incredible. Mm. Uh, melodically, they're fantastic. There isn't a single thing, really, you could say about Paul's songs on that album that you could criticize. You may like some tracks less than others, like, say, Honey Pie or Why Don't We Do It In The Road. But they are amazing in what they are.
1: But I do remember a time, you know, <laughs> back in the UK, when I was still living in England, most likely the early 90s, and you were at my place, and we were talking about Paul's lyrics and, you know, his solo career and, and so on. Yeah. And I just remember this moment when you just sat there and looked at me and went, and oh, bloody, oh, bladder What the
2: bloody hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> I was young, Your Honor. What can I say? <laughs> have have um, you revised your opinion on that? Uh... It's just—it's a story song. That's that's what it's about. Yeah. It's obviously a story song, the kind that um, they knew that Paul wrote and and did very well at. Um, it's it's just a, a observation of people. The title came from this guy he knew in London, called Jimmy Scott, who used to go obla oh, di obla oh, da man, uh, with a huge joint, you know, between his fingers. How how are you, Jimmy? Obla oh, di obla oh, da. Life goes on, brah. And Paul, being a songwriter, thought oh, I'll take that.
1: Fantastic. Uh, and he got.
2: Uh, paid for that as well they they slipped him some money for that. Really oh. Jimmy Scott yeah. I but otherwise what is about well it's not about Paul other than the fact that you get to learn from that song that he can write those kind of songs. Yeah. But it's not self-revealing. Right.
3: think it's kind of interesting that there you know john very shortly after this stopped writing story songs but here there are still some too there's bungalow bill even though it's a story that's based in reality in, in yeah. rishikesh uh cry baby cry you know what's that's it, it's a, a fantastic song but it's not it's through the looking glass yeah um cry baby cries uh, goes back to 67 doesn't it that's when he started it, yeah. to write yeah that, yeah yeah. Um, so, you know, he still, he still has some of that Paul approach, but not quite. But, uh, it's true. There's in, in Paul songs, there's a wall between Paul and the Paul projected in songs. And that is, you know, it's, that's basically the typical songwriter thing. You know, songwriters don't generally sit yeah. down and say, uh, yeah. I want to write about myself. Yeah. Which became John's stance, but Paul still was writing as an increasingly professional songwriter. And, you know, he knew by the time of the White Album exactly what to do.
5: Yeah.
3: Um, And I think also he was interested, even more than the stories that he's telling, I think he's interested in the musical variety that his songs represent. Yeah. I think he just wants to say, you know, I can write a 20s tune just as well as the 20s guys could. Right. I can write a Beach Boys song better, maybe than the Beach Boys could, <laughs> yeah. but at least as good, you know. Uh, and he's
1: writing for other artists as well, or, or giving some songs away to other artists at yeah. the same time, you know. I yeah.
2: really like Me Bob for the Black Dyke Mills band. Yeah. Uh, what a really nice tune that is. I mean, it's a bit of English brass, a northern brass band. You have to be an Englishman really to know what that means, but it's a particularly warm kind of nurturing sound. It's a it's the sound of brass bands, at industrial works. It's like a works band, yeah. and he writes the tune for a TV, uh, a TV signature tune called, for a series called Me Bob, and it and and it's just like a great brass band tune, <laughs> and he goes up and conducts it as well. At, at the same, so is there anything this guy can't do?
1: Well, that's it. I mean, you know, you listen um, on the. New White Album, you know, the, the outtakes, and we've got okay. Dear Prudence mm. stripped down. And here you've got the Beatles bassist playing the drums. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and he's absolutely fantastic, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, it, like you say, what couldn't the guy do? And vocally, the isolated tracks, as you say, on other people's numbers, you know, there's this sort of criticism that Paul was always more interested in doing his numbers. Well, yeah, but listen to what he contributes to everyone else's numbers, yeah. you know, yeah. both musically, and vocally, yeah. Fantastic, absolutely amazing.
4: Flew in from Miami Beach POAC, didn't get to bed last night. On the way the paperback was on my knee, man, I had an awful flight. I'm back in the USS song. You don't know how lucky you are, boy. Back in the USS song. So long I hardly knew the place Gee, it's good to be back home Leave it till tomorrow to unpack my case Honey, disconnect the phone I'm back in the USSR You don't know how lucky you are, boy Back in the US, back in the US, back in the USSR well, the Ukraine girls really knock me out They leave the West behind And Moscow girls make me sing and shout That Georgia's always on my mind my, 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 my. Oh, In the USSR Well the green girls really not be out Leave the West behind And the score girls make me sing and shout Ooh. USSR. Oh,
5: let me tell you, honey Hey, I'm back! I'm back in the
4: USSR Hey, it's so good to be home Yeah, back in the USSR
1: That's the thing about his album is just the range of the music and the stunning display of his musical talents. And then between the Lennon McCartney albums, we've also got their musical influences bleeding all over, right? Yeah. You know, that's the thing, you know, with and with Paul we get, you know, sort of nineteen twenties kind of Hollywood pastiche and music hall and it's all there, isn't it?
2: Yeah, for one guy to do I mean I was listening to I Will this morning in an isolated vocal track on I Will and it's a it's a beautiful high note that he holds all the way through, mm. like the choir boy that he was, literally. He he was a church choir boy, um for a period of time. His voice is broken, but he can still hold a, a falsetto. And um the a cappella bass line. Yeah, and then he's doing the dum 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 bass line and then he does Helter Skelter. <laughs> where which would tear the throat out of anybody else. Um, and he does take after take of it as well. I mean, yeah. he's got such great um, sustenance in his voice as well. When well. he always I mean, did
1: an evening yeah. concert. He had better sustenance than John.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. But also, this is the guy who recorded yesterday, and I'm down in the same day. Right. You know?
1: Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah, he's absolutely on fire with this. Where are your sort of? Where do you find the weaknesses in Paul's album, Alan?
3: I, it's just that there are songs that I like less than other songs on the White Album, but, you know, it's not like we're talking about just disliking them as songs that much. I mean, D. is, you know, a little, I don't know, it's a little light, but I, you know, I may be just influenced by John's constant complaints about it, yeah. you know, I mean, because I was listening to it again on the remastered version and, probably the 5.1, <laughs> uh, and and thinking, you know, really, there's a lot going on in this song, and it's really kind of interesting in a way, and he's going after a particular style, which, like all the other styles, he has in his fingers and voice and, yeah. you know, a certain amount of mastery, and uh, it's you know he he's gotten what he has aimed for so is that a failure i don't know maybe i may i may disagree with whether his aim should have been or should not have been but i I don't even you know it's like that's uh wild honey pie but you know again it was sort of an experiment off the cuff thing and i kind of think there's, an, you know, again, listening to the remaster, thinking of a lot of these things differently than I had. And I'm thinking of Wild Honey Pie, not as exactly a counterpoint to Revolution 9, but in a way, it, it is in the sense that he's doing something really kind of off the wall that wouldn't normally be on a pop album or a Beatles album. And, it, you know, he's experimenting with it. And When
0: know. I look back, actually, when I look at the list, when you break out Paul and you break out John, the one thing that keeps coming back to me since we've done this show is i look at paul's list and i see animation 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 they're all like little movies <laughs> yeah. they're very very it's a very cinematic approach that he took <laughs> with his character development and later in life of course paul is you know a great champion of uh, of animation he did some really beautiful work that is largely not thought about very much mm. but if you ever see that dvd of his you know the 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 animation project one where he had all of the rough stuff from rupert and everything it's well worth your money, that's a great evening's entertainment, but I look at this and I'm thinking God, I'm so inspired, like somebody should do something with this you know, Paul's album would be uh, a great kids record, and and maybe that's why I favored Paul's stuff, I was a kid when that came out, and I remember thinking when I eventually got the White Album uh, you know, the, the next year it was 7.98. dollars um, that was big money dude <laughs> so, but whenever I, I, I remember thinking that John's stuff was too harsh for me when i was a kid really? yeah yeah it really was hard I, except for the softer you know you've Julia. always been a tender soul haven't you <laughs> usually just says i'm a heel <laughs> no, enough with joke. I put my foot in that anyway so i'll stop <laughs> anyway uh yeah i think i think it was as i got older the john stuff got more and more heavy and and attached to my soul and now the most interesting thing of all i think for all of us here is as we revisit in 5.1 uh, as we revisit revolution number nine, which, I mean, a lot of people, I'm sure, that's it's like pristine on their original vinyl copies because people tended to skip over that. A couple of years ago, some guys I know really did a deep dive into trying to figure out every single layer in there, every recording. And the more you get into the, the separate bits, which, of course, you can appreciate now that on the DVD, um, on the 5.1 version, uh, it really is incredible and it's also incredible to think that that was 50 years ago you know nobody was doing I mean that is sort of like music concrete uh, but it's it is just so complex and rich and how interesting how interesting indeed that 50 years later we're starting to wake up to this track that everyone kind of went, oh man what's that
1: well you I, know. Alan I remember you saying on the show also that you know there are people who spent all their lives working on music concrete. Uh, uh, and, you know, here John comes straight in and sort of improvises something. That yeah,
3: and it's better than a lot of that. I mean, as, a, you know, the other side of my life as a classical music critic, I've been to many, many, many concerts with music concrete pieces. And Revolution Number 9 for me, I mean, if I were to do an anthology of the greatest music concrete pieces ever composed, uh, Revolution Number Nine would really be at the top of the list for me.
5: Really, um,
3: yeah. it's you know, and I don't think just because it's the Beatles, I think it uh, it it kind of has a narrative arc in a weird way, and um, and it it just works. It's just sort of a, a, a brilliant compilation of sounds that you might think of as disparate, but they go together. Right, you know? right. So yeah, so,
1: I mean, so ultimately we come back to the thing though. Do we think they work equally well as separate albums as they do together?
3: I think I'd prefer the John album if I had to only pick one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Paul's works just as well in its way for his aims, mm. you know, to show that variety. I don't think John was as that interested in that, although there's plenty of variety in his bunch of tracks. Um, and to tell stories, you know. Uh, And the more I listen to the reissue, and I think, you know, I'm I'm really thinking that this is is really the value of these reissues. I love getting the outtakes and all that just to get the outtakes. Mm. But the other thing about listening to the outtakes is it's showing me a lot more about these songs than I knew before Right. and so it's making me reconsider a lot of things and things that I have thought of as throwaways or just that I don't like them as much as other things I'm really kind of in the process of reconsidering all of that mm. so I, I don't even know what I think about you know Paul's album versus John's album now but what
1: about compared to the, the double white album you
3: know Oh, would I think that a John White album would be better than the whole double White album? Or do you
1: think it matches it?
3: Oh, man, you know, an album with out my, While My Guitar Gently Weeps? Um, yeah. yeah, I don't think you, know? you
0: can do that. I think yeah. as strong as they are, you can't... I mean, it would be a great album on its own, but it wouldn't be... The White Album, it would it'd be some some other great piece of John's work. I
1: think it would be more satisfying, a John White Album, than the single disc White Album that George Martin was suggesting, you know, a really strong, I, I don't know, I think the consistency in John's album makes that a really, really, really strong album. Yeah, what would
0: you cut? True. Mark, you probably speak to this a lot better. Um, George Martin famously would say that he thought it should have been reduced to a single album. What on earth are you cutting from that?
2: Well, the reasons for George saying that are different to the ones that we might think anyway, because it's not just necessarily about 16 of these tracks aren't good enough, which might be what he was kind of saying, that you've got a top tier and a second tier. He, for a start, he was a busy producer, so he didn't necessarily want to be booking six months or five months out of his own uh, schedule just for the Beatles. He wanted to do other things. So that would have been a reason for saying, why don't we just make it a single album? Because he'd be finished earlier. That would be one thing. Um, the second thing is that the way that George Martin judged a song as a, as a piece of music that ought to be recorded um, is different to the way that we would all judge one. Uh, and I did have the opportunity many times with George. I sat through, we did the anthology projects together and I sat through uh, outtakes that I considered to be very strong and, and worthy of being included on anthology one or two or three. And he would go, oh, that was rubbish. And his criteria for judging it would be completely different to mine. Um, So, because he had different ears and, 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 and had different sensibility about what a track should be. So, I couldn't possibly cut 16 or longer tracks. I mean, the Beatles always thought 14 tracks for an album. Whenever, that was always the magic number in their head. When they've got 10 in the can, they go, okay, we've got four more to do when they've got 11 in the can we've got 3 more to do so 14 was the number i don't think a 14 track white album was possible because they're longer mm. now so say the single disc white album is about 12 tracks then you've got to cut 18 tracks from the white album i, I couldn't cut any right. i really couldn't so uh, but george martin said that for other, you know for other reasons another one was that um he felt excluded from the decision-making process. I mean, he was an A&R man. The R stands for repertoire, because in his job, he would actually have to choose the songs that the artist is going to do. That's the A for artists and the R for repertoire. Well, before he's even heard any of the tracks, he's reading Paul McCartney and Melody Maker, saying we've got 30 tracks, and we're going to do two albums, and maybe even three. Well, so he has no say. So he's been emasculated from that. You know, you're welcome, George. Please come in. We want to work with you. But this is what we're doing, George. So his decision-making on that, and the reason why he said it should be a single disc, is not just what we might think to be an obvious one. It's, it, it's, it's layered and complex and tied, tied in with their relationship and his diminishing role.
1: What about his suspicion, which he expressed to me, which was that they contractually... With EMI, they had it was not only dependent on the term of the contract, but also the number of songs. Yeah, and he felt that they were putting out that number of songs to more quickly fulfil the contract.
2: Yeah, it, uh, the the contract that Brian Epstein negotiated in January '67 or was signed in January '67 called for it was a nine-year contract. It would expire in '76, um, but it called for a minimum of 70 tracks was well, 70 tracks, which was a, sh- a shrewd bit of negotiating by Brian Epstein. Um, that's five albums, five are 70. Uh, and that doesn't even count the singles. So right. it's probably four 14s and some singles. Well, the Beatles were typically recording two albums a year. So by 69, they were likely to have fulfilled that. Mm. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. And that's why Alan Klein had the strength uh, to, to renegotiate the contract, because... Though they were still tied to EMI until '76, if they didn't want to, they they need not have recorded any more. Of course, they were they had to because they were artists and they were writing. But that was a, a strong position they were in. Tony Bramwell, who was around the Beatles throughout the making of the White Album, told me a long time ago. That he remembered them saying, with regard to this 70 song clause in the contract, that it's like 65 down, five to go. It's like <laughs> <laughs> they really were aware of that number. Um, I'm amazed because we were talking
1: recently about how what they usually did was creative, right? They weren't coming at it from the business angle. Yeah. They were musicians. They loved the art. Yeah, So this, this is interesting. Well, it
2: is. Obviously, they were going to continue to create. Um, but as I said, this is why Alan Klein had such a strong hand. He, he never acknowledged Brian Epstein's help in giving him that strong hand to renegotiate the contract. But that's exactly what it was.
3: You know, we may be asking the wrong question about, you know, there's been a lot of focus at various panels here uh, about how would you do a one-disc white album. Uh, Maybe the, the question really should be, if, you know, going from Paul McCartney's comments in Melody Maker and the available materials, if you had a three-disc right out, how loved it. would you sequence it? You know, you, where would you put not guilty, and where would you put... And let, let's say that would also include if, if they had done circles in the studio and Sour Milk Sea themselves yeah. and stuff like that. Well, that's I mean, a
0: tragedy they didn't do Sour Milk Sea. If yeah. you listen to that backing track... Uh, anyone, you, you Google that some, somebody took the demo and floated it over the backing track and reduce, um, removed Jackie Lomax's vocal. And even though it's an approximation, you get a pretty damn nice result. So that, that was a tragedy. Yeah. They should have used that. One.
1: Yeah, but it's true. I mean, that's the way I'd be going if anything would have been a triple album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's enough material for sure. And, and now that's really revealed itself. In yeah. five point one, where
5: the
3: where the Beatles are concerned, less is never more. More is more. More is most. Yeah, you know? yeah, it
5: is.
0: Well, if they had done that, uh, another thing revealed in the new box set would, if you go to a three disc set, oh, maybe that means is it uh, is, is it like one side <clears throat> going to be blank? I know what they could have done with that side if they didn't have enough songs, and all you had to do was to hear. Uh, you're So Square, Baby, I Don't Care. Right. If they had just filled that last, it, what a tragedy that they didn't just do oldies right then and there, right as that session ended because they were on fire and everything that Get Back should have been is encapsulated in that one little track that they gave us, You're So Square. They, there's no way that band sounds divided. And if they're just kind of ripping that off in between takes, Give me more of that. that that's hamburg on steroids I yeah mean, it's just
5: Incredibly amazing good.
1: and it's interesting actually on that subject for a second about those jam sessions they're all the ones that we've got at least they're all led by paul which is kind of where we get to during <coughs> the get back sessions isn't it
2: yeah yeah i think that was the first thought that we all had when we heard uh you're so square It's just like how come they can do this in september 68 and in january 69 they can't do it at all right. and that is a subject for a symposium in itself yeah. what, ha- what happened between the end yeah. of the white album and the start of the next one because there's a decay there that's quite obvious um, so what happened yeah. another symposium
0: well there are several bands that have, you know king crimson comes to mind where they figured out gee we we record this album and then we go out on the road and by the time we're finished on the road the album sounds much better Mm. so they some bands would take the road band or or after they'd done their new material on live and then go in the studio uh i wonder if it's a little of that at work you know they've they've been working on this thing for months and months and months no layoff and you know now they're ready to do an oldies record they just didn't realize maybe one of the very few times they made the wrong (coughs) decision Mm. yeah
2: during the making of this album they decided that they would go back on stage uh, and that they were booking halls, if you can believe what you read, and there is some a lot of truth to it. Um, either the London Albert Hall, the Royal Albert Hall, or the Roundhouse, a little strange little place in London, a round building, uh, where a lot of experimental stuff was done, and they were going to go on stage and play before an audience again, immediately after finishing this album. So what would their set list have been? It is very much a what if, because it didn't happen, but in the last four weeks of making the White Album they are accepting of the position that before the year is out they'll be on stage together Mm -hmm. and they're going to be playing tracks now even though the Beatles did things unexpectedly being that they had a new album out at the last week of November if they're on stage in December, surely they're going to be playing tracks on that album. So we could have very easily had a position where they were actually on stage playing this before the year of 68 was out. And it was only when that got shunted forward into 69 that it then didn't work as an idea anymore.
4: Why don't we do it in the road?
1: So ultimately, do we still, does it actually tell us, listening to John's White Album and Paul's White Album, that it was better to merge them? I know about George and Ringo's tracks as well, but just as a concept, do you think it would match the concept of the combined album to have separate albums?
3: I just don't know. I mean, part of what makes. A Beatles album, any album, work as well as it does is the contrast between the John and the Paul songs mm. and George When There Is. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, in the way they play off each other, even though the list of John songs yeah. is great and would make a great John solo album, um, I, I don't think it's entirely as great as the White Album as a mm. you know thing.
1: I, uh, I think for me it's more like if I just want full-on Lennon, you know, in full cry, you know, then, you know, I do have that on the playlist and I'll just listen to, you know, it's like, let's just, you know, cut to the quick here and, and get him full yeah. on.
0: I think the combined efforts produced something that is just startlingly incredible. It, even now, I think it's probably leapfrogged Revolver and has become my favorite. And I, I think it's just, because, especially this new remaster, I don't know if you guys all feel the same. For me, suddenly this album sounds very modern, like very alive, very like we're there, they're here, and everyone's alive again. And, you know, it's uh, it's very, they did an excellent, excellent job. Giles, if you're listening, you did a hell of a job uh, yeah, on both yeah. the stereo and
2: the 5.1. Yeah, one. yeah. But, yes. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't, you know, yeah. speaking
0: of 5.1, do you guys, anybody here have the Yellow Submarine uh, DVD? Do you ever go in? All right. Do you ever go in and shut off the dialogue and just listen to the music? And you can listen to that in five point one too. Yeah. Eleanor Rigby. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's. I don't know why. I, I wonder if. Uh, how many people have a five point one system? Okay. So pretty much everybody.
2: Okay. Um, for me, I, I I just feel that as we found out when they broke up, that the Beatles were greater than the sum of their parts. So the John album is 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 superb. The Paul album is superb. George and Ringo's tracks, which don't make a whole album, are strong in themselves. But when you plug them all in together, yeah. <clears throat> when you integrate them, then there's this extra thing, which is you've got all that talent and all that music, but the combination is always stronger than the individual components.
1: Uh, and what do you think about you know, the fact that now we just play it straight through, as opposed to <coughs> having to flip the disc yeah. and have the opening track and the closing track? Yeah. I mean, do you think that diminishes? The experience in terms of what they intended.
2: Um, well, it's it's certainly blurred the the business of having a strong beginning and a strong ending to each side. Yeah, <clears throat> and that's true. That's the whole CD era for all albums made pre nineteen eighty three. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was always a key part of producing is to you know what's your opening track, what's your closing track, what's where's where's your dividing line. Um, so that's gone. But we hear. I think I hear it in my head anyway. Yeah. Uh, when I when I hear "Happiness Is a Warm Gun" and that final that final drum, I know it's the end of side one. I know I've got to flip it over. Yeah. Um, but to me, there was always a, quite a distinct uh, feeling between the four sides, <clears throat> and I always felt I have never tested this scientifically, but I always felt that the most played parts of the White Album were discs one, uh, sides one and two. That sides three and four probably were on people's turntables a little bit less, and probably side four least of all because it had Revolution 9 on it, and also because the, the more accessible songs are, are those that you want to have on, on discs one and two. So I think side four is probably the last you know, 15, 20 minutes of the White Album is the least known aspect of the album. Um, but I quite often play discs on shuffle anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really it's make any It's interesting that
3: you say that, that you play them on shuffle, and, but also that you think of them as distinct sides, because when when uh, Mark, I I played the 5.1 for Mark and uh, I think we listened to it a couple of times and I think both times each at the end of each side you said put it on pause. And we had like a little break, you know, a little more than you would take to flip over the record. But it was really four distinct sides. Did did
5: you have a needle scratch in
3: there? Uh, (laughs) No, we didn't. Uh, I probably could have arranged for that. The break was because I wanted to talk about it. I really,
2: really wanted to talk about what we had heard. And if we'd gone straight into yet another track, I wouldn't have a chance to to emote over what I'd been listening to, which Mm -hmm. I really did want to (laughs) do. Um, that was a great experience. Uh, here, it, it's five point one. I don't know if anybody knows that. Yeah. But, yeah. <coughs> and uh, Alan's
1: got a five point
2: one. And I was saying. going around the room, sticking my heads inside the loudspeakers, uh, my head yeah. inside the loudspeakers, trying to catch everything that I possibly could. Yeah. It was a hugely rewarding experience. Yeah, yeah. say yeah. for me.
3: Over here, listen to Paul's bass. You know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and then he'd move on to the next speaker.
3: I'd catch what he was listening. I remember, to. like
2: on Piggy's, uh, Paul's bass. He he kind of plays his bass in a way that grunts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you. can't Really catch that in the conventional stereo, but when you actually listen to just the bass, it's like he's pulling it in such a way that it grunts like a pig so brilliant! Yeah, um,
1: and you can hear the fingering on the strings and everything yeah. as well. In the 5.1, yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. How can an album 50 years old sound so modern that because it's t- timeless? Yeah, okay, boom, boom.
1: Yeah, you got
2: it. I was thinking
3: I should convince Universal not to put out the 5.1 mix so that all my friends have to come to my house. And oh. Exactly. You're all welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mark Lewison. I'm Richard Buskin. <laughs> I'm Alan Cosin. I'm Eric Tarros. <clears throat>
4: You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. You tell me that it's evolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Don't you know it's going to be all right? All right. All right. Say you got a real solution, well, you know We'd all love to see the plan You ask me for a contribution, well, you know We all doing what we can But if you want money for people with minds that hate all I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait. Don't you know it's going to be all right? All right. All right. Uh, 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 uh. Chairman Mao You ain't gonna make it with anyone anyhow
5: All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. right. The Beatles Naked. Post production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok.
2: Tune in, it is out, so. Oh, the second book? Um, The answer I've been giving this weekend is it will be out by 2050. (laughs) That quick? I just don't know when between now and 2050, but it will. will, by By then, I'm sure you'll have that book and probably the one after as well.